0: Hello, hello. It's Brooke DeVard, and you're listening to the Naked Beauty Podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. This episode is a little bit different than my typical episodes, but this topic was just too important. And I think one of the things about having a podcast and the platform is you can use that platform to tell other people's stories, to raise awareness, to increase empathy. And with all of the violence... And anti Asian rhetoric happening. I thought this was too important to let just pass by. Crimes targeting Asian Americans have risen dramatically since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. Stop AAPI Hate is a coalition that tracks incidents of violence and harassment against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in the US. And they have reported nearly 3,800 instances of discrimination against Asians in the past year. And the number could be much higher because. Elderly people are being targeted for these attacks, which is just awful and heartbreaking. It it makes you just wonder what's even happening with humanity. But because these attackers are targeting older people, sometimes these incidents of hate crime are not being reported because they're targeting people that may not have the access or the knowledge or the language skills to know to report these crimes, which is, again, part of the problem. As I spoke to the three amazing women that you'll hear from today on this episode, there are some themes that constantly came up. This idea of the Asian community being gaslit and being made to feel like what's happening to them is not as serious as it is, media portrayals and how a lack of Asian representation really harms people's understanding of the Asian American experience, but also growing up not seeing yourself reflected impacts your sense of self as well. We talk about this hate crime in Atlanta and how the media has reacted to it, and in some instances isn't even referring to it as a hate crime. We talk about Asian women being hypersexualized and how that's impacted the women that you're going to hear from. For me, one of the things that's been really eye-opening as I reflect back on my own education is that we don't learn about Asian American history as much. And from a historical perspective, when you think about the Chinese Exclusion Act, which banned immigration to America from China, Chinese people in this country were not even allowed to become American citizens until 1943. And our country has a history of racism and policy against Asian Americans. And I don't think it's something that we talk about or reflect on enough. So I have linked to some resources in the show notes so you can educate yourself and learn more because I think that's very important for all of us to do so. On this episode, you guys are going to hear from Charlotte Cho, who is Korean American, and she started SoCo Glam and then an amazing skincare line called Then I Met You that I just absolutely love. Her episode of Naked Beauty is amazing. And if you are a K-Beauty fan, she pioneered K-Beauty in the United States. So you have to go back and listen to her episode. It's from about a year ago. Then I talked to Lucy Zhang, my longtime friend. She does social for Vogue Magazine. She had a lot to say and just spoke so openly about how everything happening right now is impacting her, but also reflecting back on growing up and being made to feel different and and then being fetishized when it comes to dating. And then I speak to my amazing manager at work, Natalie Chan. She grew up in Sydney, so she has a different perspective. But we have a lot of parallels in terms of growing up and going to majority white schools and how that impacted us. So I really think you guys are going to learn a lot from hearing from... These three women that I've gathered from this conversation. And I would encourage you all to kind of heed their advice. One of the questions that I ask every single person I interview is What do you want allies to understand about this moment? And what can allies do to help? And they gave some really great tips and advice. So, please enjoy this episode share it with people in your community in your network who also want to build empathy for the Asian American or Asian experience and thank you guys so much for listening let's get into the episode Hello, Charlotte Cho. Welcome back to Naked Beauty. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm so excited to have you back because I think that your voice and your perspective on just this the rise in anti-Asian sentiment and anti-Asian hate crimes is such an important topic. And I'm particularly really wanting to talk to you about it because I feel like in the beauty community we love K-beauty, right? And like, we love like a gua sha routine and like we love so many things about Asian beauty culture. But I think it's really important to, you know, not just love the culture and all of the beauty stuff it has to offer, but also think about the people. And, And when a group of people is hurting, I think it's really important that it's acknowledged and understood by all communities.
1: Absolutely. And again, we were chatting before, but thank you so much for taking the time to even hear me out, amplify my voice and my perspective. I'm happy to discuss any questions that you have and just talk about it. I think understanding education is the key to all of this to lessen the pain and to to have empathy for all communities.
0: Absolutely. So before we get into the questions, could you just share your ethnicity with the listeners?
1: Yeah, I'm Korean American. I was born and raised in California, but my parents are both from South Korea.
0: Great, great. And a little bit about what you do. you do. You do many things, but if you could share with us.
1: I'm a new mom, yes. <laughs> just like you. And um, in fact, we had our kids around the same time. But uh, other than the, my new identity as a mom, I'm also co-founder of Soko Glam, a Korean beauty platform, and also my skincare line, Then I Met You. Yes.
0: I'm so happy that you're here and we can talk about this. All right. So the first question, which is a painful question, but I do want to understand, how has the rise of anti-Asian sentiment and the rise of Asian hate crimes impacted you?
1: So growing up in California, I actually, I was the only Asian kid in school and um, I definitely dealt with racism growing up. You know, they would have specific chants for me. They would say that my eyes were like slits and they were surprised I could see out of them. Like there's all these things that I experienced as a kid, which I of course oppressed because <laughs> I've even seen my own parents get verbally attacked with racist comments and, and, and things like that, of that nature. And I've seen them just stay quiet and not fight back, not talk about it. And so I think, you know, as a kid growing up, you kind of learn how to internalize it as well. But, I guess, you know, recently due to the pandemic, due to Trump's rhetoric and the words that he blatantly chooses to use to divide us, there's definitely been a rise in anti-Asian sentiment, blaming just the Asian-American community in general for COVID-19. So I've I've been personally verbally attacked in the streets of New York, which has been shocking for me. Wow. uh, Considering how diverse it is. And that's why I love the city. Oh my God. Wait, what
0: happened? Like, were you, when did this happen?
1: I was coming from a trip from Korea. I was on a business trip in Korea for about a couple of weeks, came back. But on the the time that I was coming back to JFK, it was at the outbreak of of COVID-19 started happening. And basically everyone in Korea immediately started wearing masks. And uh, even on my flight, back to JFK, the stewardesses, all the passengers were wearing masks, no question about it. It wasn't even like a question. So once I landed JFK, I had a mask on, but everyone kind of looked at me like I was diseased. And I remember riding a subway shortly after and literally people were just trying to stay away from me as if I was a carrier of COVID. And so that's when it started beginning. And then once I was walking to work and um, someone was calling me the Kung Fu virus. And I just had to like quickly kind of run off, you know, because I didn't want to let it escalate. And it was really heartbreaking because I thought that I kind of left that behind. You know, you just think that when I was in elementary school being made fun of and being called racist things, they were kids, you know, it was a long time ago. And now I'm just like 35 years old and dealing with this again. And these are grown ass adults. So um, I know it's not as bad as being, okay, here I go again, this typical Asian (laughs) mentality of downplaying.
0: Right. Yeah. Don't. Don't downplay yeah. <laughs> it. Don't downplay
1: it. I mean, I guess just in light of the Atlanta deaths and that it's very terrible, the the six Asian women who have been gunned down and have lost their lives um, recently, it just makes me so angry that we're still in this in this bubble where we're just dealing with this, and it's just like, have we not progressed at all? And it just makes me angry because Trump, I, I believe, has instigated a lot of this divide, and he's again and again, publicly just called it the China virus. And I think words matter, especially when you're a leader. And he just, I believe, has exasperated a lot of this. And it it makes me so frustrated.
0: I mean, he's, he's absolutely helped to embolden racists already. And his just hateful rhetoric is absolutely to blame for a lot of what's happening. I think the thing that's been really hard for me to wrap my head around is seeing elderly people
1: attacked. Yes.
0: It's very upsetting.
1: They know that they won't, quote unquote, fight back or report it to the police. And as a result, they're getting attacked and it's heartbreaking.
0: Absolutely. I think you're bringing up this um, shooting in Atlanta. And I think with the shooting in Atlanta, people have been talking a little bit more about how Asian women have been hypersexualized in media. And I'm wondering if that's something that you've experienced or you... Just watching media representations of Asian women, you feel is true?
1: Absolutely. I mean, everything that I, I grew up watching was, you know, not only Asian prostitutes, or I guess every role that I've seen for the most part growing up had to do with women or men having professions like laundromat owners or liquor store owners or having an accent or a delivery driver, or, you know, it's never a, an aspirational occupation. Um, and I think the media definitely contributes to a lot of what is happening. And on top of that, you know, when when there are racist acts, acts against the Asian American community, oftentimes the media also ignores it. They gloss over it. They almost gaslight it by saying, hey, that's not actually not newsworthy or not that important. And, you know, they, they, they contribute to it. I, I completely agree with that.
0: Yeah, I've been surprised that uh, the media hasn't really been covering it as extensively. I mean, it, it's it's a shame that it took a shooting to really like bring this conversation into the mainstream because it's been happening for months and months and months. Um, what do you think about brands that have stayed silent? You know, in the beauty space, as I mentioned before, a lot of brands, you know, dip into aspects of Asian beauty culture and are really loud about that. But then, when something like this happens, they're not as vocal.
1: I know, very disappointing, but I'm, I'm going to just lead by example through the platform and the privilege I have of, of basically owning that platform and just be loud and proud about my heritage and then speaking up for the people who are voiceless. Dave and I are super passionate about using our platform for this purpose. And we want to lead and show other beauty companies how to do it. And I'm okay with, I'm okay with beauty companies coming around to it later. It's okay. I think that with education, by talking about it, as long as you can reflect and make changes, I'm not going to villainize anyone or any brand. I just want them to be part of the conversation eventually. And now's a, now's a good time. You know, and I think as the Atlanta shootings have shown, things are escalating. I think it's most important to reach out to your audience and and if you have influence to speak out and talk about it or allow the people in your community to vocalize their hurt and their pain. So hopefully we're leading by example. I mean, Soko Glam recently, um, even we're we're a beauty company, right? But we recently gave a hundred free virtual tickets to the Korean American immigrant movie called Minari. Um, and that's just to help further educate others. On- that movie was nominated for an Oscar, right? Yes, yes, yes. And um, Golden—they won a few awards. Yeah, yeah. Already with the Golden Globes, but yeah, and and I mean, we're a beauty company; we have nothing to do with film or Hollywood. But this was an important way to help educate and help communities understand what the Korean American immigrant life is like, and through that, better understanding equals empathy. So.
0: I think we talked about this a little bit on your full episode of Naked Beauty, but growing up, not seeing yourself reflected or seeing representations of, you know, beautiful Korean women in mainstream American culture. Do you think that impacted your understanding of yourself or just even feeling beautiful growing up?
1: Oh, my gosh when you just ask that question, I feel chills because yeah, I absolutely felt insecure and, and othered by just the representations that I saw. I had no role models growing up um, that looked like me. And I almost was ashamed of being Korean at one point when I was growing up because of that. And then it was only until I lived and worked in Korea after college did I fully appreciate and understand that, Korean people are beautiful too, and that I have something to be proud about, and that's why I even started Soko Glam because I was so passionate about what I had learned—not only Korean beauty techniques, but just feeling confident and feeling feeling like I was part of the conversation when it comes to beauty. So, definitely, um, being an Asian woman growing up in in the U.S. has definitely made me feel different, and I, I think that I hope my daughter Kennedy never has to experience that, and that's another part of why I'm being vocal because I do not want her to have the same childhood as I did.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully it's better better for our our children than it was for us.
1: Yeah. And I think that it's great that honestly, one silver lining is that our generation is willing to speak up. And, and that's what I've really taken note of during this time because of all the elders that are being attacked, my parents' generation included, their heads down. They don't want to cause a fuss. They don't want to rock the boat. But then the following generation after my parents' generation is willing to. And so we have a huge responsibility on our our shoulders.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's so important to recognize how much power comes with being vocal. What do you want allies to understand about what's happening right now? And how can allies help?
1: When I think about the reaction to the Atlanta shooting, I get so angry because immediately after that news broke, everyone started talking about how his motive, we're not sure yet if it's actually a racist act or a hate crime, you need to let the investigation be conducted, you know, and then soon there were reports about him being a churchgoer and actually had a sexual addiction and he actually wasn't targeting Asian women. That makes my blood boil because again, we're being gaslit as an Asian American community. We're being told that eight six women dying by a white male it might not be a hate crime you got to wait till the murder speaks and says what he did was a hate crime you have to get you have to get his permission it just makes me so mad that we're not accepting the action and we're not as a community telling everyone else that this is a hate crime this is a racist act yet we have to wait for this murder to almost concur and say say that what he did was actually a hate crime. Which which murderer is going to do that? Maybe there's some crazies out there, but you actually get charged with a much harder sentence if you admit that it's a hate crime. So no one in their right mind will actually admit to it. So why are we even asking this question? Why are we asking for the cops to run a thorough investigation? It is a hate crime. Actions speak louder than words. So I would like to say to our allies please don't gaslight us. (laughs) Please understand that, you know, when we feel something and we feel hurt and we experience something and we see things, something like six people being gunned down and three parlors that have predominantly Asian women working have been targeted, that is a hate crime, period, full stop. And so that is what I'd like to say to our allies. And I think speaking out helps so much because it raises awareness and it gives voice to honestly, the Asian American community that feel powerless to speak up and have always felt invisible because we felt invisible for so long. We're not going to suddenly wake up and find our voice. So we need people of position and influence to speak out for us.
0: That's amazing. Thank you so much, Charlotte, for, for sharing that. And I think that's given me a lot to think about. And I hope that I can continue to use my platform to shine a light on different people's stories, but also just to, I mean, like you said, we're we're a beauty brand, but we're like doing this thing about um, cinema. Like uh, this is a beauty podcast, but this is just too important. And it's something that we all need to know about and think about. So thank you so much, Charlotte, for your time. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Brooke. These were super thoughtful questions and I really appreciate you taking time again.
0: Hi, Lacey. Thank you so much for joining me on Naked Beauty. You're back on Naked Beauty. You've been here before, but I'm happy that you have decided to come and speak with me this evening.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. Just introduce yourself, um, what you do, and then we'll get into our conversation.
2: Yeah. I'm Lucy. I have known Brooke for a couple of years from our days at Ralph Lauren, and I'm currently on the social media team at Vogue Magazine.
0: Nice. And what's your ethnic background?
2: I am first-generation Chinese-American. First-generation Chinese-American. Okay.
0: And where in China are your parents from? They both grew up. In Shanghai.
2: I think, yeah, they were both born and raised in Shanghai. I love how I just hesitated for a second. (laughs) It's been a long day. Yeah. Yeah. I want to
0: talk to you. You're here in New York City. How has the rise of this anti Asian sentiment and anti Asian hate crimes impacted you?
2: So I'm lucky to say that I have not been directly affected by it, and that nobody I know and love has really been attacked. But I think that in my circle, I have known people that have been attacked. And obviously I have experienced microaggressions or just sense of coldness towards being in a space. And I think that it's been really tough these last couple of weeks. Well, for the last few months, we've just sort of been seeing this like ongoing attacks happening. And I actually live kind of near Chinatown. So it's been a little, well, obviously being a woman in New York, you're always a little, there is a part of you that's always a little scared of walking around outside. But really for the first time, I felt fear about walking around due to being Asian. And I think it's because you would hear all of these random things happening to other Asian people, young Asian people too, like me, around all the places where I just walk around or my subway stop or things about people like getting spit on the subway, just awful things. So that I've been trying to deal with. So that's been tough. And I think I've been speaking to a couple other people too, who are Asian as well in New York, and they've kind of been feeling similarly. And one of my friends is actually doctor and was, feeling a lot of the animosity throughout the year. And he was in a really interesting position because he's literally saving lives like in the COVID ICU unit. And yet he's also being scapegoated for this moment. So that's been tough.
0: Do you think that like, as soon as Trump addressed this as like the Chinese virus and we heard these things going around about Kung flu, like really offensive things, as soon as he said, Those words, did you have a sense how much it would impact the Asian community? Or was it something that over time kind of began to understand?
2: I think, in a way, I did because I think that I've been conscious of just the ongoing anti Asian rhetoric or sentiment in American history that's been going on. And so I think that that was definitely a clear marker that like this feeling is going to be amplified in America. And I didn't necessarily know where that was going to lead, but I knew that it felt like a different singling out of a community.
0: So you shared this, um, how do Asian Americans heal from a lifetime of hidden realities and unspoken trauma unrecognized by others? We must begin to integrate the fractured pieces of our identity that emerged to protect us from a world that refused to see us and benefited from our parents' silence. And I think one of the things that I've seen a lot is that I guess many people in the Asian community have felt like they have been silent about their erasure or their lack of representation. Could you speak a little bit more to that?
2: Yeah. I think that a lot of that is also gaslighting of the Asian community, honestly, and saying that we don't have it bad, as bad as other groups do, and therefore we must not have it. I think that that thinking becomes ingrained in you and you sort of start to think that you are just being sensitive to a situation or you, know, you don't have a right to complain because somebody insulting your appearance isn't as bad as what, you know, somebody physically harming someone else. And I think it was Kathy Parkong that wrote this, but just remembering that it's not the struggle Olympics when it comes to minority groups. And I think that last year, there's a lot of talk about how the model minority myth really hurt everybody involved. And it wasn't, it's not necessarily like, I think it's been told to Asian Americans as if it's a compliment. But it's not. And it's only held back, you know, all the other minority groups as well by then placing the blame on them for being part of the system. And so the part of that quote that actually really stuck out to me was how society benefited from our parents' silence. And I think a lot of that, too, is... Recognizing the sacrifice that our parents made to come here and knowing that they didn't really have a space or they didn't have the language or they didn't understand how culture worked here in a way that allowed them to really complain when they were being hurt or oppressed or taken advantage of. And I grew up with my parents kind of sharing it here and there. So, like, I knew that we would not be treated the same as other people. But they also shielded a lot of that from me. And I didn't know about it until I was older. And so now it like fills me with rage sometimes when I think about everything that people go through. And then just to be told, oh, you didn't go through anything, you had the same experience as a white person in America is just not, it's just not the same.
0: Absolutely not the same. And I think another interesting aspect that for me, has come up with um, specifically this hate crime in Atlanta is this idea of Asian women being hypersexualized or oversexualized, which is something that I think we've seen in mainstream media. I'm thinking about Austin Powers movies growing up, or just the idea of Asian women being hypersexualized. Is that something that one, you've noticed in the media, but two, you've also experienced just like growing up? you know, did did men approach you differently as an Asian woman? Did you have to deal with any just like inappropriate comments from people as a result of being Asian?
2: Well, you definitely experience it. And I think you also have your guard up a bit. I was thinking about this before too. I mean, the sexualization of women happens to so many other cultures and minorities too. It kind of feels like unless you are a white person, you're not able to have Nuance of character. Like the characters that you see on screen are always like a typecast of a single, some sort of person. And I think that it's interesting because the hypersexualization of Asian women has, in a weird way, been twisted to also seem as a compliment to us because we are desired by the white male gaze. And yet at the same time, the same media has also made Asian men unattractive and has made them unattractive for the white female gaze. So you have that strange gender dynamic and sort of who is desirable out of the group of Asians and why. And then I think too, like there's layers of just the history of sex trafficking in Southeast Asia and how a lot of the customers for like victims of sex trafficking are from the West. And there's like that layer on top of that. And then your question about how personally I experienced it. I mean, I think, again, when you know that somebody has dated several Asian women in the past, it kind of personally makes me pause, try to
0: figure out... You mean like a a non-Asian person, if all of their previous girlfriends are Asian?
2: Even if it's an Asian person, because then it's... Do you have... But that's a little more complex. Okay. But there are also obviously Asian men that only want to date Asian women. Do you have an issue with that? I think that it's a bit of a different topic, but I mean, everyone should do whatever they want to do. But obviously within Asian culture, there's also kind of cultural norms and pressures to conform to a certain vision of what an Asian woman is within Asian culture. I don't think that, I mean, I think Asian culture also has its own different power dynamic. Like, for example, I know for my parents and their generation, if you married into a family, the woman would have to go and live with the man's family because you're a part of his family. Right. So anyway, but it's it's definitely very different from the situation that we're talking about which is American men, I guess, yes. who are probably not Asian. I think you do sometimes pause to just try to figure out, is this someone who can see me as my whole person? Or is this someone who may see me as something exotic or different or have some kind of stereotype belief ahead of time that somehow makes them attracted to me? but is not the real me. Right. Has anyone explicitly
0: come at you in a way where it was clear that you were being fetishized?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been walking down Midtown and men have grabbed me and said, oh, you're so exotic. Or actually, this was funny. One time literally, I-, I hate men sometimes when I hear stories like this. It's just like, why? Or, you know, anytime we are in the street and people are like, Konichiwa. People
0: say Konichiwa to you?
2: Yes. Well, my favorite was one time I was in front of like Dwayne Reed in Union Square and this guy was like, ni like, konnichiwa, kawaii. I was like, wow, you're just like really trying out all the, (laughs) I don't know. But, um, but those are so obvious that like, you don't even, I mean, like, I feel like as a woman, you just get crazy-ass cat calls. Mine are just probably very racially hinged most of the time because the men that want to come up to me just see that I'm Asian and just throw out some shit like that. Right. Oh, my God. But like all women are getting crazy things on dating apps, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, that's a lot. Um, And I think... You know, one of on your very first episode of Naked Beauty, one of the things that you made me realize is um, we were talking about beauty tutorials and you were saying like, you know, your eye shape is different. And like so many of the tutorials and the way that they talk about like eyeliner application or eyeshadow application is, you know, just assuming a specific, like very Western facial structure or face type. So I think that even in areas that we feel like we're really progressive and like we have representation, like I think the beauty industry... I think one, the beauty industry is progressive. Um, I think they've, in a lot of ways, are like further along than the fashion world, um, but there's still a long way to go in terms of like representation. And I think I've seen a lot of brands get much better about having like black representation on something as superficial as like their Instagram feeds and their websites. But I don't know, do you feel like you if you're looking for skincare products or makeup products, do you feel like you see a lot of models or creators that are Asian you know showing those products
2: well it's definitely increased a lot i would say from when i was a kid or major or young adult even but in recent years yeah there have been there have been more people and also diversity of asians i mean i think that one of the nuances here too is like beauty standards in a, of an asian in a western world versus beauty standards of an asian in asian society like what chinese people consider is beautiful for ch- other chinese people is different from what americans think is beautiful for a chinese person how
0: are they different
2: well i think that even in asia and this is this is not i mean this is like you can read into a lot of this so <laughs> double lids are considered desirable large eyes are considered desirable straight hair like glass skin pale skin being light skinned no freckles being skinny Like having a a petite frame, you know? So I think that there is also still a diversity in what Asian beauty can be. Like Asians have freckles and they have curly hair and they can be bigger, they can be smaller. So there's, I think it's becoming more diverse. But yeah, there is also that nuance there of like Asian versus Western standards of beauty as well.
0: Totally. That's so interesting. I think. A lot of brands haven't been as vocal about this message around stopping Asian hate, and maybe I mean we're we're having this conversation on Thursday. Maybe by the weekend <laughs> or by Monday, they'll they'll start releasing statements. But has it surprised you that some of the brands um, haven't spoken out against this, when especially the luxury brands that clearly have you know Asian customer bases, if they haven't said anything?
2: Yeah, I think that after last summer and everybody trying to be better about taking a stand of solidarity and all of these, um, and, you know, and listening and doing the work and all of that. I think that a lot of people have been talking for this about this for months and it's really horrible that this shooting has been kind of the catalyst for this to be a larger nationwide conversation. But I think that a lot of brands silence during the past few months says more. I was especially sensitive to it around Lunar New Year because it felt like how could you acknowledge, I'm just speaking personally, like how could you acknowledge your Asian customers for Lunar New Year, but not acknowledge the that they're experiencing right now? And so it felt kind of like we see you, but they didn't fully. But a lot of it too, like I said, I think that the conversation around whether or not Asians experience racism is still a conversation that we're still having. Like people are still asking whether or not Asians are considered people of color. Which is wild to me. Right, like we'll see. I mean, it would be great if some of them did, especially the ones that really cater towards an Asian customer or feature Asian inspired products. I mean, I think that what's already been said is already been said by not doing anything until they're being asked to do it. So,
0: yeah, I think you're right. It's like a little bit late at this point. Just want to, you grew up in Indiana, which is, you know, not the most diverse melting pot in the world. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Growing up, did you feel othered for being Asian? Did you feel different from your classmates? Were you made to feel different? I should say, not did you feel different? Were you made to feel different?
2: You know, it's hard sometimes to think about What it was like when you were so young, because I almost think about what was my memory and what's like me projecting onto my memory. But I think it comes back to sort of the sense of microaggressions. Like, I think that a lot of people at my school didn't necessarily say anything hateful to my face. I think a lot of it was like, I remember in fifth grade, every single girl did this like messy bun thing. And like, all the girls did this and put like a ribbon in it and it was like a thing. So, I went home and I tried to do it, but I couldn't do it because my hair was this straight. And it's like you kind of need like this wavy hair, like texture to sort of keep it up and like in. But not not
0: too much texture because I couldn't have done it. (laughs) 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 A a specific brand of white girl hair only. Okay. I got it.
2: So, the fact that I was like the only girl in class and I had like my best friend at the time also like wouldn't do the messy bun. So like the two of us were like non-messy bun girls and every single other girl in the class was a messy bun girl. And I kind of just remember feeling like, oh, I'm not like included, but I don't understand why. So I kind of just like internalized it. And I think as I grew older, elementary school, I was like the only Asian kid in class. And then in junior high and in high school, I... Was able to have other Asian peers and like meet them and hang out with them and kind of compare and contrast our experiences. And that was very helpful and just understanding like the cultural differences that we have at home versus what our classmates probably are having. And I think that it really helped me just not, I really appreciated not having to explain certain things with them. Like if I said I couldn't go do something or like I had to, I don't know, like go to this class on Sunday or whatever, like. They understood. Whereas I felt like it would be weird telling some of my other friends probably because they just, they would just like get some pushback as to why I'm doing this. Totally. But I mean, it definitely affected me. I think it affected all of us. I think that now as adults, we look back on that time and realize like how much we were really processing in the moment that we didn't necessarily understand. And it's taken some time for us to like heal from that and heal from the patterns of behavior that like we developed in order to cope with that situation. I remember in like second grade, I got in trouble for like talking a lot in class basically. And I remember in seventh grade, I got some like, like the like grade voted on random superlatives and I won most quiet, (laughs) (laughs) which like, what the fuck? But, But I was also like, I think about that. And I think about who I was at in seventh grade, just like, not understanding what was going on and feeling different and not understanding why and just holding it in. And I was like, that is probably why. Wow. Quiet.
0: (laughs) Wow. That's deep. That's deep to to look back and understand that it wasn't that you were quiet. Yeah. You were maybe holding some stuff in. Well, last question. And I think this is an important one because I want to hear from you. Like, I want to be an ally. I think everyone listening um, who's not Asian wants to be an ally. So what do you want allies to understand about what's happening right
2: now? And what can we do to help? Well, first of all, I really appreciate that. And I think that you had texted me earlier today, and that meant a lot. And I think what really touched me was when you were saying that you had looked into the Chinese Exclusion Act, and you were doing some of your own reading. I mean, I think that that's probably the most important. Like We talked about this last summer too with Black Lives Matter, like don't ask your Asian friend right now to explain why they're so hurt or explain or ask them to share what microaggressions and examples of racism they've had. Like you can Google <laughs> what Asians have had to experience in America or just Google quickly like anti-Asian hate crimes and see what's been coming up and just know that like we've also been seeing that and we've been worried about Our loved ones and our Asian friends. So there's that. And I also think I'm probably coming at this from my personal role in media, but I think when any person is going through something that's really painful, you have to understand that, like, they're not really fully functioning right now. And so giving them kind of space to deal with things. And I really appreciate that. Honestly, my team has kind of just given me space and hasn't asked for like random small things that could come later because they just know that like right now is not the time but also step up for places where you feel like you can probably help out and just take something off their plate or suggest you know advocate for the community at work or in your circles because like we're always going to have to advocate for ourselves but it does get tiring and I think that like a lot of what was said last summer around like understanding what Black Americans go through and understanding how to deal with a group experiencing trauma, like also kind of applies here because this is another group that's experiencing their own trauma. And so, yeah, that's great and so
0: helpful. And I just appreciate your, your honesty and taking the time to share all of this with me and my listeners. So thank you so much, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Natalie Chan, thank you for being on Naked Beauty. You are my manager at work, so everyone knows what you do. Uh, (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on. So we'd love to hear where you grew up, but also your ethnic background.
3: Yes. So I'm Chinese. I was born in Australia, grew up in Sydney, and grew up in a very affluent white um, neighborhood and community. I moved to New York almost 10 years ago. And I think that Not being from the US has meant that I've had to work harder to learn about the history of racism here. We studied like a little bit of American history at school, but it wasn't a huge amount. I think it's also been in parallel with my own journey and my own identity as someone who's Chinese, but born in Australia in a very white uh, community and uh, almost like a whitewashed upbringing, I'd say. So I think that's been like a huge part of like the, the journey and like where I've come from.
0: Yeah, I mean, speaking as someone who grew up in also a majority white environment, I think it's always like a journey to realize the parts of your identity that maybe you suppressed or you didn't feel as connected to because you just didn't have that representation or like know to feel connected to those parts of your culture. Yeah. So today's topic is really about the rise of anti-Asian sentiment, but also hate crimes against the Asian community. And I want to understand how that's impacted you personally.
3: so much to unpack right there. It's impacted me personally. Well, it's always impacted me. I think that's the first thing. I think people have always said, it's a moment in time. What a horrible week. What a bad day for this particular individual that we're talking about in the news right now. And I think it's impacted me my whole life. And I actually think I also didn't have that reckoning until a few years ago, really, again, as part of that personal journey and my own identity. I think this particular week has been hard because now as a mother, I'm The mother of a little girl, Charlotte, who is biracial. So she's half Chinese, a quarter Hungarian, a quarter Austrian, English. But the reality is she looks more Chinese than she looks white. And so that visible, I guess that, you know, that the visit, like the visibility of the two of us walking in the street um, on that personal level again, I think every day is something I'm starting to feel more and more. It's encroaching on me and my level of comfort, my level of safety. So that's, I think, the first piece. The big thing for me has been the most noticeable thing this particular week or in the last two weeks um, has been that the fact that when I walk out the front door, I am conscious that I am a Chinese woman walking down the street with my Chinese daughter. And I think that is something that, you know, I want to place faith in humanity and look around me at the com- local community around me to know that, like, you know, something won't happen to us. But it's hard not to think that just pure, like, you know, visible diversity, there's that risk right there.
0: And I think it's also been really hard to see elderly people targeted. Why do you think that is?
3: Honestly, I think it goes back to just like what who bullies go after people who are you know more vulnerable, weaker than themselves. I think you also look at you know the perpetrators. They've, there's obviously a ton of anger there. Like you see that in the violence, the physical violence that comes out, and it's easy to go after someone who's seemingly lesser than you, perhaps not lesser in strength or identity, but literally physical size. And I think that's the frustrating piece. I also think, again, we go back to what we know. And again, it's a it, it's also a stereotype but all of the statistics are showing that elderly Asian people in the community are not necessarily reporting it. It's going underreported. They don't want to make a fuss. They don't want it to be, they just want it to go away. And that's just a lifetime of bearing that pain and that trauma. And it's a way of moving on. And I think it's actually therefore, unlike the rest of us, the next generation to be more vocal and to be loud about it and to support them.
0: Yeah, This this idea of, being silenced or not feeling empowered to share incidents that happen to you, racially motivated incidents that happen to you. Do you think that's something that's unique to the Asian community or something that the Asian community faces in a way that other communities
3: don't? I think all communities face it. But I think that in the Asian community, just culturally the way that we're raised, that's ingrained in you. So I think that's the that has more of an effect in like how you think about the response. I know my grandma used to say to my mom, they don't like us, they being Know white people, they don't like us, they don't want us here. Just keep your head down, you know, keep your nose out of trouble. And I think that's how my mum grew up. And so, you think about like what that does to a young woman. And in my mum's case, she grew up in a very diverse community. But again, there was a lot of, I think, animosity between marginalized communities at that time when she was growing up in Australia. Thank you, white supremacy. But I think you tell people to like keep your nose down, like don't make a fuss, like just, you know, stay quiet, like, you know, don't let someone pick on you. Then I think that has a huge impact on like how you respond to situations like this. I think the challenge is, I wouldn't say other communities don't. feel like they have the ability to speak up or have that space. I think there's space for all of us. But the reality is, again, we talked about the concept of gaslighting before. We talk about the fact that A lot of people who are not from any of these marginalized communities, it's very easy for them to just gloss over what's happening and be sad and empathetic, but not really be listening or not really be willing to advocate and help. So over time, it's almost a bit like, why am I speaking up about this anymore? And why am I spending my mental energy on doing this with you? And I think that's a real challenge.
0: Yeah, I can absolutely understand that. Another interesting part of the conversation that I hadn't considered that's come up with the hate crime in Atlanta... Because many people were saying that he was targeting sex workers, mm-hmm. it's just the hypersexualization of Asian women in culture, and I'm wondering how that impacted you growing up, um, and if it's something that you felt
3: a huge amount. I think one of my friends at home always references the time that we were at a pub, like just you know a few um, minutes away from where I was living, and it was a really busy night. There was a huge rugby game on we're all at the pub. I'm probably in my like very early 20s, like first job out of uni, like just you know out for a drink with my friends. And the two of us, he's male, were walking up to the bar to get a drink. And this guy just turned around and said, oh, I love me a bit of bamboo. And oh, God, I mean, that's just... But at that point, I was also just so used to comments like that that I would just brush it off. But my friend was like shocked and annoyed and was like, wait, wait a second. And I was like, no, no, no. Again, and I think that was again on me. My response was no, no, like let's just get the drink. Don't worry. It happens all the time. And that dismissal as well. And I think just being young and not feeling I was in a position to one, have a good comeback Two, like, you almost, you're embarrassed and you're ashamed, but then you're angry. And it's like the conflict of all these feelings when you're, you know, 20, 21 and not knowing how to respond and not being equipped to do that is really challenging. I was always conscious. My boyfriend now husband is white and we would go on holidays to Thailand and I used to say to him, I'm so glad we're the same age, so that you don't look <laughs> like you're the older white man, right? With like yeah. the the younger Asian woman. But I did feel this stigma or like sense of like I was very aware, hyper aware of it, you know, you're in Thailand, going out to clubs in Bangkok, you know, you're going to bars. And in my way, I had to like reassure myself, well, you know, people wouldn't think that about me because. You know, he's. We just look like two young people on holidays. But again, what I realize, like as I like look back on in time over this and unpack all of that, I'm like, I was also like ashamed about the fetishization and not looking at the people who were doing this and the perpetrators. I was looking at other like young Asian women and being thinking, oh, thank God I'm not like that. So again, what I like worry about is like that's all packed into adjacency to white supremacy, proximity to whiteness, and how I was trying to distance myself from that. And you know, that's it's really sad. And when I think about that growing up and, you know, how I think a lot of young women are probably, you know, their responses today, I think that's all wrapped up in that too. But I think also at the end of the day, we can call it what it is. It's just racism too.
0: Yeah. Hyper-sexualizing or fetishizing a group of people is just an extension of racism. Absolutely. How did growing up in majority white spaces make you feel different growing up or othered?
3: It was just constantly present. I had people who would also, I think, whitewash my identity and tell me like, oh, you look, you know, you're, you're so pretty for a Chinese girl. You look Hawaiian, like a Hawaiian princess. I think, you know, cause that's, that's more interesting and exotic than being Chinese. I think again, the, the people I could look to who would look like me were my cousins or my, fa- you know, my family. And so there was no real outside of my family, there was no real exposure to other people like me in the community. There was no sense of pride. My grandpa used to tell me growing up, China's going to be a superpower one day, like take pride in like being Chinese. And I just wanted, I didn't want anything to do with that. My mom said one of her saddest memories was when I was, I think five. So basically in kindergarten and she's packing my lunch. And I was like, is that Chinese chicken? And she's like, what do you mean? What's Chinese chicken? i was like, did you put soy sauce on there? And the other memory she said she has of me is asking, you know, why don't I have blue eyes and blonde hair like Alicia, another girl that I grew up with? So it was obviously present. I don't have memories of this, but it's, you know, in discussing this with my mom, it's been very present from early on. And now being a mom to Charlotte and like thinking about where we're living here in Brooklyn, like, yes, it's diverse, but I also live in an area that's gentrifying very rapidly. And so when I look around at the playground, it's increasingly over the last couple of years at more and more white. And I really think about what does that mean for her experience growing up? And so much of that means I have to unpack my own identity and figure out myself first and do the work with me because all of that is now being imparted um, to my daughter.
0: Wow. You touched on so much just now. Um, I mean, one, your grandpa sounds amazing and he was absolutely right for you to take pride in it. And it's good. Even if you you didn't want anything to do with it at the time, even hearing him say it probably Mm -hmm. subtly means something. And this idea about lunch. Yeah. It's like... You just want to have like the plain, and, and and I'm sure the the chicken with soy sauce was way better than like the turkey sandwich with <laughs> right? mayonnaise that the other kids <laughs> exactly. Had. But you just want to fit in. You just want to fit in. And I hear all the time from black women that I interview that they get told this thing: "I'm pre- you're pretty for a black girl," and some of them beat themselves up for taking it as a compliment at the time, and not saying, "Okay, this is a teachable moment." I'm going to tell you all the reasons why that's you know inherently racist, but. When you're young, sometimes you just don't have... You can't access that language or that bravery in the moment. But I do hope that this generation coming up is better and does you know, teach their peers when they say things like that. So I have hope. I want to talk a little bit about just how and this is maybe specific to American culture, but I think, you know, I went to Sydney once. I was there for three days. So (laughs) let's call me an expert. Um, But people seem to love Asian culture, right? Like people love going to dim sum on the weekends. People love to do like a K-beauty beauty beauty routine. People generally seem to love Asian culture, but then when it comes to the Asian community dealing with what they're dealing with right now and have been dealing with for months, and I should say that because this, this shooting was just... It's an event, but it's not an isolated event, right? So when it comes to supporting what the Asian community has been going through, a lot of people and brands have been silent. And we just had the summer of Black Lives Matter and understanding that we each have to use our platforms for more. And I'm wondering why you feel either people or brands, you can take either one or both, have been less quick to stand in solidarity with the Asian community right now.
3: Well, let's go back to the first part of your, wasn't your question, but your commentary and observation that people like culture, but they don't necessarily like the people. And you reminded me, I can't remember if it was the Beats by Dre commercial, but there was a spot recently that came out on um black men and the black community. And the narrative was, you like me, or you're oh, sorry, you like my culture, but you don't like me. You like my sneakers, you like, you know, all of the music, but you don't like me. And I think that can be, the same can be said for Asian culture too. People love Tokyo. They love the food. They love the scene, how dynamic it is. They love K-beauty, K like, you know, like K-pop, like all of that. But when it really comes down to they love going to dim sum, but you know, they really, when it comes down to really immersing themselves in the culture and not just the output of that culture, they're not there for it. Why is that the case? I think because it's easy. Like it's easy to think about what's relevant to you. And I think what resonates with you and like the, it's like cultural appropriation. You're just going to take the good things out of that and not worry about doing the work to understand that culture, really appreciate it. So I think that's on the people front. I think on the brand side, I think they're actually tied. The people behind those brands are predominantly white. You know, they're not from any of these marginalized communities. So they're not doing the work. And I think, frankly, a friend of mine who's white said to me tonight, she texted to check in and ask how I was doing and, she basically said, yeah, I think people are sad and empathetic, but they don't know what to do and they don't know what to say. And that goes back to that concept of white fragility. So when brands suddenly are faced with moments like this, they're probably stuck in this place where they're like, we don't know what to say and how to respond. Also, we know we haven't had a history of ever supporting these communities or being for these people, even if you know, a lot of their consumers that you know are from these communities. And so I think these brands get... Paralyzed. And I think the people behind them don't know what to do. Unfortunately, these moments are treated as moments. So I think then some brands let the moment pass and they don't do the work. It's, you know, we know it's a marathon. You've got to be sustained in your efforts here. But again, I think it's that it's the people behind the brands and that like lack of willingness to go out there and do something different.
0: I do want to ask you what do you want allies to understand about what's happening right now? first part of the question. And the second part of the question is how can allies help in a meaningful way?
3: I think that it's not a moment in time and whether it's last summer and racial justice and George Floyd, or it's, you know, this current period that we've seen the last few months with anti-Asian hate crimes, it's not a moment in time and it's not a bad week and not a bad period. And it's not, wow, what a year with the pandemic. This has been a lifetime for people. That's what I really want people to take away from this. And to know that, if you want to be an ally into your second question and really do meaningful work, do the work always, and make you know we all have goals at the end at the start of the year. I my reading list for the year I want to read these books and these fiction novels. Diversify your reading list, make that part of your homework or part of the you know your goals for the year. Do the work for yourself and think about your own journey and I think the other piece is don't just let this moment be performative and you know do your one-off your one-time donation like just do the work and have the difficult conversations with your own family and friends that's what I ask for
0: yes thank you so much inspiring and thoughtful as always I appreciate you
3: thank you for making space for us
0: Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope hearing the stories today gave you new perspective. And I invite you to check out the resources linked in the show notes and check out at Naked Beauty Planet for more on this discussion. Thank you guys.